I think one of the superpowers that books have that is that people desire now is being able to cover something in great depth and breadth. So that's why that's why we have big, uh, long-running uh, miniseries like Game of Thrones, and it's why we have big books. Those are the two media that we have right now where you can tell a story and, and uh, convey a world in uh, tremendous detail. The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. I'm Kevin Kelly, a Long Now board member, senior maverick at Wired Magazine. I'll be asking Neil, some questions. Uh, I have a handful, and then we're going to really open it up to um, this crowd here. Um, so Neil is, of course, uh, probably one of the most popular, if not the most popular, science fiction, living science fiction author today. Um, very prolific, um, and uh, someone who's really been instrumental and influential in, I think, the course of our technological innovations uh, today. And he has a new book, and we're going to um, hear about it. So Neil, if you would come out. Sure. So Welcome. Yes, thank you. Welcome Hi. to the interval. You've been here before. You made um, the mistake of having me stand next to a bar while you were introducing <laughs> me, so I picked something up on the way in. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this is the book, The Fall. It's massive. It's a Neil book. It's a Neil book. <laughs> Has anyone, any of your fans ever come up to you and said, Neil, could you make your books longer? All the time, yeah, because the... Really? Yeah, well, I think... I think part of the, one of the superpowers of, well, they don't say it that way. They say, well, you know, uh, what happened, you know, I, I, I want to know what happened to these people after, you know, the last page. So that's effectively asking for, for more. I don't know. The, I think one of the superpowers that books have that, is, that people desire now is being able to cover something in great depth and breadth. So that's why, that's why we have big, uh, long-running uh, miniseries like Game of Thrones. That's why we have big books. Those are the two media that we have right now where you can tell a story and, and uh, convey a world in uh, tremendous detail. So I felt heroic just finishing the book, just reading it all. Okay. You are I could imagine writing it. It was just sort of mind-boggling. So uh, are you kind of like a person who does the 300 words a day, some, whatever that minimum yes. is? Yeah. And are you still writing in longhand and pen? Yes. Yeah. So you wrote this book out in longhand? Yeah. Oh, my yeah. gosh. I mean, it's, it's not, I mean, it's, it's more about steady work than doing monumental amounts of work. I mean, if you think about it, it's not a big deal to sit down and write a few pages in a, uh, a morning. Uh, if you do that uh, 
every day, or you do it 300 days a year, you've got much more than a novel's worth of material after a year, right? So um, if it just becomes a habitual activity, then generating uh, lots of lots of pages is it's just it's it's not as big a, an accomplishment as it might look like if you just suddenly see the entire thing finished. But my understanding is that you actually were working on this for a number of years, over a number of years. Well, I had the idea a long time ago of um, uh, of kind of this general. Well, first of all, I've been interested in in Milton and Paradise Lost for a while. Mm -hmm. So for a long time, I was thinking of trying to do a, uh, and other people are thinking of this too, it's not an original idea, but, but Paradise Lost would make a great movie, a great sort of giant action, sort of Lord of the Rings movie, because that's kind of how it reads. There's these huge wars between heaven and hell where they're shooting cannons at each other, and you know, it's, uh, it's super epic in scale. But Milton himself was a really interesting guy. He was a, um, a believing, practicing Christian from a Puritan uh, background. Um, but when he was a younger man, before he went blind, he was sort of a, he's sort of like an uh, action hero Puritan. You know, he would he'd go around <laughs> the university with a sword and he'd get into fights with the sort of more cavalier type people. And he went to Italy um, and wandered around Italy during a time when a lot of the English people he was going to encounter there would be sort of cavaliers, royalists who would be, you know, armed and, and gunning for him. So he was kind of a swashbuckler, and he, he went to Italy and he, he hung out with Galileo. So he actually sought out Galileo and, and talked to him. Um, and then he, he comes back to England and various interesting things happen to him there, there and he becomes a famous blind Christian poet. Um, but um, so uh, he'd be an interesting study for a, a biopic right. uh, all by himself. So you've given a little hint about the book. Yeah. Um, do you want to, is there any way you can summarize it uh, for, for the... <laughs> Yeah, the, well, so a lot of my books are actually multiple books combined into one, right. right? So, for example, Cryptonomicon is a World War II book and a modern-day book that are interleaved, and mm -hmm. that's true of a bunch of my books. So this one is a high-fantasy novel that's embedded in a techno-thriller. And the techno-thriller is about a guy who dies, and uh, it turns out that when he was a younger guy, he came into a bunch of money. Was that, was that my beard hitting the, the mic? <laughs> Sometimes that happens. When he was a younger guy and he came into money for the first time, he, was, uh, he signed one of these wills that gives instructions on how to preserve his body after he dies so he could be brought back to life. And, um, and then he forgot about it because he didn't really care. It was just sort of a thing he did on a whim. But then he dies unexpectedly and his uh, family and friends find this will sitting there like a time bomb, and they have to figure out how to carry out the, uh, the terms of the will, and because the, the deceased is a billionaire, they can't claim that there's a lack of resources, you know, they, so um, uh, he gets scanned. The way they do it is they scan his brain, and then later on, he is brought back to life in the cloud as a digital 
uh, simulation of a consciousness. Um, and uh, there's nothing there. And he wants qualia. He wants something to be there. I, I, I've just made Alvi a very happy guy <laughs> by working in his favorite word. Um, <laughs> so the, uh, um, he, he, you can't, your brain is hooked up in such a way that, uh, you know, it, it needs, uh, it needs stimuli. It needs, uh, it needs inputs. Um, and, and he's not getting any of that. So he has to create them. Um, and he starts to build a world that, um, he doesn't have clear, coherent memories of where he came from, uh, just fragmented, jumbled sort of memories. And so he begins to try to assemble a coherent world out of that and ends up building a world that's kind of like our world. But it's sort of a mashup of our world with you know, the Bible and Greek myths and Lord of the Rings and you know, whatever was going through his head. And then other people start showing up and sort of spreading out and populating this world. And that is the world in which the, the high fantasy novel uh, uh, takes place. Um, and we know that it's a digital simulation, but the people who live there don't know that. It's as real to them as this world is to everyone right. here. Raising the question of, is it just turtles all the way down? Right, right. Yeah. So, so Snowcratch was sort of about uh, the metaverse is kind of like a VR world. This is not VR. This is actually uh, a synthetic right. world where there's no um, interface with the real world. Right. Um, so, um, so, so there's, there, there's a, as you said, there's lots of talk about wills, mortality, death. I wonder if in writing this, did you change your mind about anything uh, yourself? About your, I mean, did, did it give you any insight in yourself about what comes next? About the that, about that stuff? Um, the, uh, um, you know, I, I tended to be pretty skeptical of the whole idea that the world is a digital simulation because it seems a little facile, but I, I, I think I warmed up to it a little <laughs> bit during the, the course of, of, of writing, of writing this one. Like, you know, what if this world is, a, you know, a simulated, uh, uh thing that came out of a previous world, which itself, again, turtles all the way down. Um, and so I play with that a little bit. Um, but um, the, um, I, I should say another big influence was uh, David Deutsch's book, The Fabric of Reality, where he, he gets into the topic of how much computational resources would it take to, uh, to make a, a truly realistic simulation of this world. Mm -hmm. And he kind of heads in the direction of, well, it would pretty much take the whole universe to simulate <laughs> the universe. Uh, um, and so there's some, some reference to that also mm -hmm. in, this, uh, in this book. One of the things I've noticed that often kind of carries through a lot of your books, at least the more recent ones, is that there's, a, um, there's often a kind of a gun-toting, Adiholian right-winger character at least, or some, some aspect of that. And I'm wondering if that is deliberate or just accidental? Um, well, there's not a, I, I, I do enjoy putting in kind of uh, people who, are, who, who take action in a sort of mm -hmm. non-reflective way, because it's kind of the opposite of me and of <laughs> a lot of the, probably of a lot of the people who read these books. So it's a little bit of wish fulfillment in including uh, characters who are like that in mm -hmm. these things. Um, the, um, 
Um, then there's flashes of that in, in fall, but it's not quite as prevalent as it is in, in some of my other right. books. Another common thing that I've noticed is, like the, your title here, is that you seem to enjoy titles that are either hard to say, hard to spell, hard to punctuate. Yeah. Is that deliberate? Um, the, uh, well, I'm, you know, it's wordplay. It's, um, um, the, it actually became an interesting topic uh, when, when I was trying to decide on what this was going to be called because um, uh, search engine optimization is becoming a factor in what books are, are called, right? So, um, so my first idea was to call it Fall. And they were like, oh, that would have been an awesome title 15 years ago. <laughs> it's a terrible title now. So uh, because if you start typing that into Google, you know, it's not going to lead very quickly to your book. So I said, well, how about Dodge and Hell? Because that's, that's what I had been privately calling it to myself mm -hmm. the whole time I'd been working on it. And they were like, well, you know, that's maybe a little too far in the other direction. <laughs> and so I said, well, how about fall or dodge in hell? And eventually, uh, everyone kind of warmed up to that. And, uh, and that's what we called it. With a semicolon. Yeah, well, I'm told that the, the punctuation is really playing havoc with, yes. with uh, searches and that kind of thing. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, um, Oh, you a Game of Thrones fan? Yeah. So, um, as you heard, there's a kind of a lot of um, disgruntle among some fans about the ending. So, endings, are they overrated or underrated? Um, well, the, I, I, I think the, the dilemma is always, you know, do you make an ending that, uh, that's tidy and pat, uh, sort of at the risk of having it be not realistic? Because tidy pat endings, you know, they're satisfying, but it's not whatever really happens, mm -hmm. right? Um, or do you um, have it be a little, a little looser uh, in the way that real life is, um, at the risk of uh, of having it seem too open-ended? So, you know, I've kind of done both. Um, in uh, in you know, a, a few of my books, I've gone to some lengths to architect big, complicated endings that all kind of sort of stick the landing, and in other cases, I haven't, haven't done so as much. Um, I don't know. On the internet, there was a joke that if they had given you the task of, of writing the last episodes of uh, Game of Thrones, there would be two more seasons where there would be a bureaucratic minister of him rebuilding King's Landing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I didn't get that job. <laughs> but um, I yeah. do, yeah, I do see... Uh, um, the um, in in that another television series, I sometimes see things that my initial reaction is that I'm looking at lazy writing, but uh, I I don't know if it's I suspect what it really is is the showrunner saying such and such thing needs to happen, right? You know, 35 minutes into this episode right. or else, and so uh, then everything has to be rearranged to make that occur right. and um, um, so um, so that's I think when you sometimes see a character suddenly do something that's right, out right. of character you know which I, th I think accounts for a lot of the dissatisfaction that people felt with mm -hmm. uh, with uh, the the last part of that TV series kind of rushing it 
to right. uh, to a conclusion. So speaking of screenwriting, you've written a lot of books. I'm not sure if any have made it to the screen. No. What's the state of that? Are there, are there any news? Do you have any news on, on the screen version of one of your books? I wouldn't books? say I have news exactly, but Snow Crash is being worked on. Um, the um, uh, Seven Eves is being worked on. Those are kind of the two at the moment that mm -hmm. where you know, like there are active okay. uh, projects in in the work. And are you involved in the screenwriting part? Um, not really. Okay. Like I, you know, have got sort of meaningful creative uh, <laughs> uh, contribution or some other such uh, contractual language, but um, it it just it it depends on what the. Uh, you know, some writer will get the job, and then they have to make up their mind what degree of of interaction they want to have, mm -hmm. right? And um, so, uh, so it just varies. I'm I'm generally fine with it either way. Mm. One of the delights in this book for me was the the um, sections, uh, mostly in the beginning, where you have a discussion of the near future. And um, there was this uh, idea that we were entering into the world where there was, for every hoax, there was a kind of an anti-counter hoax that was trying to flood it or disarm it. And this whole idea of kind of the, um, the arming or weaponizing of hoaxes and making the arms race out of that was incredibly well done and, and I think oh, brilliant. Thanks. And it feels like that's where we're headed to. Is that something you've been thinking about for a while? Well, I wrote the, the, the chunk of the book that you're talking about um, in sort of 2015, early 2016. Oh, okay. It was really patting myself on the back for being way out, <laughs> way out ahead of things. And then when the election happened, I kind of went into a spiral for a while because, you know, it made it clear I was years behind, um, not decades ahead. And uh, so, I actually ended up kind of rewriting that. I had written it kind of as, well, here's the thing that might happen. Isn't that, you know, isn't that alarming? And then I kind of had to recast it as, here's a, a metaphor or a way of thinking about what actually did happen. Mm. Um, so it's more a portrayal of uh, a, a way of thinking about how things are, I guess, than, than a prediction. I, I, I think. A lot of science fiction writers have kind of shied away from the near future yeah. because it's sort of gotten harder. Do, do you, and you did a great job with a really believable version of the, of the near future. Thanks. Do you find uh, writing, what's more difficult to write, 50 years ahead or 500 years ahead? Um, I think, uh, well, obviously 500 years ahead you've got more leeway. No one's going to call you to account. But you do have to kind of, uh, you are kind of operating mm -hmm. uh, in, in more of a, 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 an unstructured future when you're that far out. You have to kind of, you're personally responsible for making up all of it, I guess you could say. Uh, whereas in, uh, um, in a, a more near future thing, you can kind of build on existing kind of the underlying infrastructure of what's mm -hmm. here now. Mm -hmm. um, so they both, they're different styles of of writing uh, require kind of different approaches, different skill sets mm -hmm. in a way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah. so, so one of the 
one of the areas that I've been unsatisfied as a, as a consumer of science fiction has, particularly in the Hollywood version, has been the near u universal u dystopian aspect yeah. of science fiction in that there isn't, or very, very rarely is there a depiction of a future that I want to live in. Right. And a number of years ago, you were, interest, you were involved in a, in a project, the, the Hieroglyph Project, which yep. was trying to remedy that by bringing some science fiction authors together to come forth with some positive, desirable futures. But that was a number of years ago. Is that still going on? Is that active? Did it make any difference? Uh, I don't know if it made any difference, but uh, I'm, I'm back to full dystopian nightmare. <laughs> 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 so, uh, and, and wh wh why? Why? What, what, what changed? Yeah, what changed? Um, the, uh, um, so the idea with the Hieroglyph Project was to try to present some specific uh, sort of iconic projects or things that could be built um, that, uh, um, you know, that might have a kind of inspiring or motivational mm -hmm. effect. And so, um, you know, I wrote a story about a big tall tower, um, which actually is going to get published as a separate little novella by Subterranean Press, uh, I think, next month. Um, and um, that was all fine stuff to do. It, it was hard to get people to break out of that mode. Uh, and, um, um, and, and now, uh, you know, I, I sort of have this guilty feeling that I took my eye off the, the dystopian ball <laughs> uh, long enough for, uh, for things to go horribly wrong. Um, so I won't make that mistake again. Uh, okay. Well, um, no, I mean, the, um, the uh, you know, I think what we learned is that yeah, so a, a lot of what people are concerned about with the current administration and so on is sort of damaging the rule of law, you know, the constitutional checks and balances and so on, which is all true. But the, more, the deeper, more underlying thing that's happening is the erosion of the whole concept of, of factual reality as a thing that we can, that we can work from. And that's a... That's a something so fundamental that I wasn't even aware it existed until, um, until it was suddenly gone. Right. Um, and um, so I've been, there's a, a book called uh, A Culture of Fact by Barbara Shapiro that I keep pumping, which is uh, about how the idea of facts came to us, because it, it wasn't always there. But at a certain point, it kind of emerged, um, and a, a system of algorithms for determining what facts were kind of emerged. And um, so she kind of explains how that happened and, uh, and then what it, changes that it then created in science and history and the arts and so on. Um, so it's kind of a good news, bad news in the sense that um, bad news is that uh, for a long time, we didn't even have the idea of, of facts at all. And maybe the good news is that it's, po it's possible to socially construct that. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fundamental thing that once you lose it, I don't know how you get it back. So I have, I have one more question, then we'll take questions from all you guys. I know you have m many and better questions. The, the, another 
uh, in, in this book another um, kind of default accepted technology um, that is sort of there without any introduction are the smart glasses. Mm -hmm. And um, which is kind of uh, an a, a augmented reality version of the world. Mm -hmm. you, you have a position of some sort with Magic Leap. And well said. <laughs> <laughs> um, how's that going? What's, uh, um, are, are, is the project you're working on still continuing? Yeah. Do you have enthusiasm for smart classes in general? D just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so, I don't know. The, uh, I think the iPad came out less than 10 years ago. The iPhone is a little older than that. So, um, the, it's only been that long that we've been going around staring at little glowing rectangles mm -hmm. all the time. Um, and, you know, you look at movies that were made in the 1990s, let's say, that are meant to be in a high-tech mm -hmm. environment, and, you know, people are sitting at these enormous computer monitors that have shockingly low-resolution screens, and they're talking on giant cell phones, and it just looks ridiculous, right? So. I assume that, um, that we're all going to look ridiculous in another 15 years um, because the little rectangles that we stare at all day will have been replaced by something else. And my guess is it's going to be some, some kind of headgear. Um, so, um, the, uh, uh, so, so Magic Leap and other companies are kind of working on that. And um, the, the way I thought I might be useful is in trying to think about about content and um, what uh, you know, what people could do on those devices that was that was new and special to those devices, as opposed to a, a sort of uh, re-platforming existing styles of, of content. So um, I have a little sort of content R&D squad that I work with up in Seattle. Uh, we released some tools, some sample code last year called the Goat Labs developer samples that if you download it and compile it, enables you to populate your environment with baby goats. Um, so, and in order to do that, you have to, uh, there's actually a lot that has to go right for that to happen at all. Um, so uh, that was kind of the first thing we did and, and we're working on a, uh, a larger uh, uh, content uh, project. Um, that uh, sort of a world building project that I'm hoping we'll be able to start uh, showing to people um, in, uh, in the next year or two. So there's a team working on actually generating some content, not just the tools, but actually a world or an experience. Yeah, started with tools uh, that, we, that we needed to have right. in order to do anything. And then, um, and there's more than one team. I'm just talking about my, right. my little group. Okay. So, so yeah. Alrighty. And so, does it have a name? My group? Or the content? Oh, the content. Um, it's called New Found Land. Okay. It's an IP universe. Um, so, uh, um, we've, we've trickled bits of it out on, uh, on the internet already, but um, the, uh, uh, there's more to come. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So, I think we'll take questions from the group. Um, and maybe we'll start at the front and then go to the back, back and forth. Hi, yeah. Neil. Uh, Dave Maltz here. Um, you talked at the very beginning about your writing process. Mm -hmm. 
What about your editing process? Because you're going to generate pages upon pages. You said 300 days a year, three pages a day. That's 900 pages, several years going into this. So how much do you winnow down, and how do you approach that? Uh, I, I try to proceed in such a way that there's very little need to, to winnow stuff down. So although my books are long, I like to think that they're not uh, redundant or uh, there's not a lot of stuff that, that needs to be cut out. Um, so it's just, it's a, there's a, uh, um, it's, a, it's a commonly taught procedure that you generate a huge amount of material and then, and then winnow it down. Yeah, I think it's a terrible way to do it because every time you, uh, you make cuts, you're, it's, it's, it's a lot like writing code. Every time you make a change, you're, you're, you're snipping internal connections that will come back to just destroy you eventually. Um, and it, sometimes it's obvious, but the, the ones that really destroy you are the, the cases that aren't obvious. Um, and so, um, so it's better to just, you know, that, that's why I only write for maybe two hours in the morning because what I learned a long time ago is that if I go longer than that, that's when I add in a whole bunch of garbage that it's not just removable garbage, it's garbage that's like knitted together with the actually good material <laughs> so that I can't, I can't remove the garbage without actually destroying the good stuff. So. Um, so that is my, uh, that is how I do that. But do you move things around at all? Oh, some, yeah, some, in some ways these are, some parts are kind of more modular than others. Like in this case, we're jumping back and forth between two different universes. And so there the, the modularity becomes an easier thing. Uh, in other cases, uh, it, it's, it's not so easy. Let's do one in the back. Is there somebody in the back with a microphone? Okay. Oh, here, this guy in the front. Okay. We'll do in the back next. Cool. Hi, Neil. So a lot of this book has to do with the utility and sometimes like necessity of shared fiction or shared facts. Early on in the book, the barbarians in Nebraska go all the way past like conspiracy theories to just incoherent images and sounds that they compulsively consume. Yep. Um, what do you think the, the how, how far can this go? How, how far can the erosion of common facts go before it faces some countervailing force? Um, I have the feeling we'll be finding out. Um, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the, 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 the bit you're referring to is on YouTube now. I mean, there are algorithmically generated videos on YouTube that no one knows who makes them. They seem to be aimed at children. And uh, they just, if you, if you see one, they keep, they keep coming. Um, so the algorithmically generated stuff is a real thing today. Um, the, um, I, think, uh, I, I think people start paying attention to facts uh, when it's to their advantage. Like you can't make them, like tediously lecturing them on on what the facts are never works. Uh, and, and people, whether or not they're sort of educated people or, or less educated people, um, you know, are easily seduced by, by, uh, by non-facts. But you know, it's something that sounds satisfying 
that 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 gives a uh, gives them an emotional uh, satisfaction, uh, and they don't particularly care if it's factually true or false. So, I think that the only way to to dial that back and uh, uh, and redress that situation is to somehow get into a situation where uh, we're knowing what is real and what isn't real you know, actually has consequences. Um, so um, I, was, I was trying to figure out if there was a way to do it with money. Like you know, if you had to, like it's, a, it's, it's an old traditional thing to, you know, to, to have a bar bet, right? Um, you know, you're arguing about um, you know, some old piece of movie trivia and uh, you know, I said, well, $10 says you're wrong, right? And then that's the point where you kind of have to, to sit up and pay attention um, to, what, to what really is and isn't so. Um, so, you know, maybe there's a use for a blockchain after all. Okay, <laughs> uh, anyway. in, in the back, we have somebody there. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my question is um, about intellectual and ideological walled gardens, mm -hmm. and it's kind of like something in your work that's been really important to me. I mean, burp claves and then also anathem, almost as like a series of nested ideological kind of intellectual walled gardens. And I just want to tie that to like the big five now and Tencent, because you're looking to see in the economy, you're seeing a lot of people building incredibly huge, powerful, valuable walled gardens. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to say, I mean, you kind of predicted that on some level. I mean, which would you see that going dystopian or utopian or I mean that's and that's not even a great question but yeah, what do you what do you uh, I mean what do you th what do you think about that like where do you see that going I mean I, th I can see bird waves happening in 10 20 years because people are so terrified so I mean that's that's my question yeah I mean uh, you see it all the time in in these efforts that uh, that the big five make to kind of suck you into one ecosystem or another and I think people are getting fairly jaded and, and, and pretty skeptical of any, like, no, I don't want to download your app, you know, no, I don't want to sign up for your newsletter, you know, leave me alone, kind of thing. Um, so um, uh, I don't know. Um, the uh, um, uh, I don't think that um, that the big five make money uh, in the long run by by dominating a bombed out dystopian hellhole, right? So um, maybe they do. I don't know. Um, okay, over here, Pete. Yeah, uh, Pete Leiden here. Um, I just wanted one quick comment and a question, but um, when you asked this question about his writing style, I will tell you, I was working under Kevin at Wired when Neil did a story of following the fiber optic cable around the world, and it was a 45,000 word piece. And I will say, when you brought the copy in, I could not improve it as an editor. It was the cleanest copy I had ever worked with, ever, with any other writer. And I actually worked with a lot of writers. So I will say, you. you have something going on there about your first drafts that uh, are uneditable at <laughs> some level. Yeah. Uh, but anyhow, my question is kind of a trippier one for, for the kind of long knock crowd here. Is one of the things I love about your stuff is you create essentially alternative civilizations, like Anathem, mm -hmm. uh, but also Seven Eves. I mean, you're, you're kind of creating a world that makes sense on so many levels and interconnects all the technologies and philosophies and economies, and it, it just makes sense. And even your kind of Baroque trilogy to me was essentially one of the best looks at essentially how we invented 
through the Enlightenment, essentially the Western civilization that we're kind of still working on now, representative democracy and financial yeah. capitalism and all kinds of stuff, we're for better or worse. A few minor bugs. Yeah. For minor bugs. But <laughs> yeah. it, you kind of saw on a civilizational level what was going on there. And I'm wondering, to, to Kevin's point there, is it feels to me what the world needs now is a, a positive vision of a, how does this civilization <laughs> work that is emerging here with biotech and climate change and you know new all those things that are kind of spinning around people are so freaked out about the future but it feels like yeah. we need a civilization a clear idea of what is going to emerge in the 21st century or beyond that will actually make sense of all this you, you ever thought about that is that, that an assignment or <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah uh yeah i don't know i mean the uh thank you for those kind uh words the um uh you know, people have tried to uh, write science fiction depicting a, you know, well, here's how I think everything ought to work. Like Heinlein was one of those. Uh, and, um, and it can easily come off as being a little pat and, okay, you know, here's my solution, you know, go, go set it up like this, everything will be fine. Uh, of course, nothing ever quite works out that way. Uh, so, um, uh, man, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I do think we need to get back to, um, you know, some kind of shared uh, concept of, uh, of, of, of reality and, and, and what's true and what's not. Um, so that, that would be my first, uh, my first area of concern. <laughs> uh, in a bigger, a lot of things are getting better, right, like objectively. Um, there's um, health and life expectancy and prosperity and so on, you know, by according to numerical measures are, are getting better in a lot of ways. Um, uh, but then you've got, you know, um, uh, anti-vaxxers, right? So it seems like there's this ineradicable kind of uh, uh, pushback uh, that can never be uh, completely kind of overcome. Um, so, um, I, I, I don't, I, I, I will not be able to fully answer your question uh, right now, but, but thanks for the, thanks you, for the kind you, words. It sounds like you might have some readers, though, if you were to do that, uh, <laughs> a positive view of the future. So, another, any other, so, Alvi, okay, some in the back and then uh, you, Alvi. The, yeah. the mic's back yep. there. So. Um, First of all, thank you for being here. Sure. Uh, and I noticed that in a lot of your books, uh, from a technological point of view, they're very prophetic. And then from a cultural point of view, they take a lot from history. And I was wondering, could you just speak a little bit more as to how do you decide what to pay attention to from a technological point of view today? And also, what are some cultural shifts? And how do, um, how do they influence your decision making when you're writing all of your books? Yeah, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't look to me as an example of someone who, uh, who pays careful attention to technology in a, a systematic way. I'm very hit or miss, uh, and so I, I, I miss huge things like, you know, like I ignored blockchain for a long time, and then suddenly it was big and important, and there's a whole bunch of other things like that that I... Um, um, Especially when it comes to life sciences, biotech, I'm I'm fairly fairly clueless um, about that stuff. So um, 
the, uh, um, the, the, the cultural historical stuff, you know, I, I read a lot of history. Um, uh, I, I like history that has a good narrative cadence to it. Um, and um, So what kind of history did you read for this book, Neil? Um, well, this book, I didn't read much history because it's, this is not a very historically driven okay. or research driven. There was some of the Genesis stuff, the old gods of your yeah. kind of most, you know, uh, Middle Eastern. Yeah, there's, there's a number of, um, of historical uh, religions and, and mythological systems in which you see the idea of a supreme being creating the world from chaos. Which is interesting because, like, I don't know what the word is that they're using in the original texts, mm. but they seem to have this kind of weirdly uh, forward-looking notion of this this abstract idea called called chaos, right? Like, we have a technical meaning today for what chaos is and chaos theory, but they seem to have a notion of of it as a thing that you could make stuff from. If you were smart enough, if you're God, right? Or, so you have X amount of chaos. And yeah. From chaos, yes. Right, and then you then somehow through some process that's never really explained, the supreme being forms that into stable mm -hmm. stuff. So that's the first thing that Dodge has to do uh, in this book is learn how to do that. Um, <clears throat> but um, um, but it's a, a fairly constant thing across some really ancient. Uh, uh, religious traditions. And um, so I, I give a little uh, shout out to my brother-in-law, uh, Steve Wiggins, in the acknowledgments, who is a scholar of a place called Ugarit, uh, which is a Semitic, uh, a, a city in what's now Syria, uh, where a, a bunch of religious traditions came together. So it's got, you can see elements of what became Greek religion, um, any Greek God whose name ends in EUS uh, probably came out of that um, tradition. Uh, and um, it's got pagan stuff, uh, and it's got the beginnings of, of the, uh, the monotheistic uh, religions as well. Um, so, um, so that's a, a pretty interesting place to, to study. Uh, for if you're interested in old old religions and mm -hmm. mythologies and that kind of thing. Okay. Alvi. All right. I hope I'm driven to this question by your remarks about dystopia. Okay. Your dystopian views currently. Yeah. Uh, and I hope I'm not just talking about historical religion, but I, I, I understand that religion plays a role in this book, and I'm very curious. <laughs> What you mean by that, and I hope it's not the historical religions. Well, the um, um, this is kind of about it's a little bit about where religion comes from, and and why people that people seem to have a need for it, um, and uh, so um, um, it's got uh, it it performs uh, sometimes useful social functions, sometimes less desirable social functions, but, uh, but there does seem to be a need for it and a tendency to believe in it. And um, there's, a, when I was interviewing Esther's dad uh, at town hall um, last year, uh, we talked a little bit about a, a quote uh, from, from Freeman uh, Dyson saying, um, I am a 
practicing Christian but not a believing <laughs> Christian, right? So um, uh, the um, did you guys go to church? Not really. Not really. Not okay. okay. So they didn't One practice that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, um, the uh, um, so kind of what happens in in this is um, uh, a recapitulation of that because everyone wakes up in the new world um, with shattered, broken memories or no memories at all, and um, and they they begin to to formulate uh, kind of what we would identify as religious uh, ideas and, and begin to practice religions in different ways. And so it's a little bit about the uh, sort of uh, conflict between you know, two different uh, powerful figures in this world who have different takes on how things ought to be organized. And there's Dodge, who's sort of a, more of a pagan, kind of pragmatic. Um, figure who surrounded himself with what looked like pagan, you know, uh, deities. Um, and then there's L, who's uh, uh, a, a tech entrepreneur who's enraged by how Dodge has screwed it all up. And like, L wanted to, to make a new universe that, that got rid of the old legacy cruft of, of our world. And E.L., yeah. Yeah, Elmo Shepard. Um, L is uh, it's another prefix for for God. It's you know. Yeah. Well, that, this yeah, and that that comes out a little bit of the of the early Semitic religion right. stuff. Is that El was originally one of several in a pantheon, and then uh, people started picking sides, um, and um, so for example in. Uh, you know, in the uh, the Ten Commandments, it says, "You shall have no other gods before me." It doesn't say it, there are no other gods. gods. Right, right. It never says that. <laughs> right, right. It just says, "You shall have no other right, gods right. before me." Right. right. So. And that's another actually aspect of the light of your world is that there are hierarchical levels of gods. So there are gods, and there are gods who make gods, and part of this god of religious stuff that you're talking about is the fact that there is this bit world, and there actually is God who, because people are making things. They're, they're creating land, they're creating territory. So they're, they're performing this God act, which leads them naturally. And sometimes they're making other gods that can make things. So you have this hierarchy uh, ranking of gods and this, this recursive sense of it. And so that's all kind of reflected in some of the, the ancient myths, which also have, you know, demigods who are been made by other gods. Yeah, Zeus is the kid of a titan right. who then has sex with whoever he wants to have sex with, right. and the, the, those kids are all godlike to one. Right. They're either out and out gods or they're sort of demigods, right. like Heracles right. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So that's sort of reflected. Yes, uh, we have one more here, then we'll go back to Esther. Okay, back there, please. Uh, sorry, um, my question. Uh, Kevin asked about. Where, where are uh, you? Oh, sorry. Here. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, sorry. Great. Uh, Kevin asked about film and TV and also about uh, content with Magic Leap. Mm -hmm. I was wondering more generally how you're engaging either as a consumer or a creator with, uh, with video games uh, after Clang, for example. Yeah, so the, um, I was uh, a heavy consumer um, 
sort of in the days before everything went online multiplayer. And um, then the first time I ever uh, turned that feature on, I immediately got destroyed by some random 12-year-old. <laughs> and uh, the world changed for me. And um, so, so I almost, I was going to try to get in on, um, on Fortnite, because people, I heard, heard, I, I heard people who are those early adopters talking about it. And I heard it mentioned a couple of times. And I thought, OK, maybe I can get in on this now. I, that won't happen. You know, I'll get in, I'll, I'll get good at it early enough that that won't happen. And then, like, I waited two or three days, and then one of these, I heard a conversation between two of these early adopters. Have you tried this? Yeah, I went on, and I just got obliterated by, like, random 12-year-olds. <laughs> you know, it's impossible to learn how to play that game, and so... I like missed this incredibly narrow window <laughs> of a day, of, one day of, long. Yeah, of time, uh, and so um, um, so I, I I do a little bit of of game playing just to kind of keep some awareness of of what goes on in it. Um, what do you play? Well, lately um, I've been playing um, some Anthem, which is a it's a cooperative game, so. You can still be humiliated by random 12-year-olds, but at least they're on your side. <laughs> um, and uh, so uh, that's the one I've, I've probably mm. spent the most time with lately. I tried um, the new Red Dead Redemption and... Two. Two, yeah. yeah. I, uh, I got into a UI problem where I... I had to remove a bow from my saddle so I could shoot a deer with a bow and arrow. And it took me half an hour to figure out the <laughs> sequence of UI gestures I had to make to reach out with my hand and, um, and remove this bow. Um, and so that was frustrating. Um, there's a, uh, uh, for, for the Magic Leap One, there's a Dr. Grodbort's mm -hmm. game, which is pretty intuitive. You know, robots come out of your walls and you you shoot, shoot them, and yeah. it's funny and reasonably uh, mm -hmm. so sort of generous in spirit, I would say. I mean, it's funny. Uh, it's not just um, random violence and humiliation. Mm -hmm. So, uh, another question, yeah. Esther. So the the question is vague. I hope the answer will be concrete. Um, <laughs> okay. Just talk a little bit about your own origin story. What you thought you were going to be when you were six years old. Mm. I understand, I don't know if you lived there, but you went to the University of Iowa. Do you ever go back? Um, uh, Iowa State uh, University, yeah. Um, the, um, uh, yeah, I grew up in a college town. Uh, the, um, uh, it's a, specifically a college that's all about science and engineering. Um, it's um, like, it was a Manhattan Project outpost. There were you know, kids in my Boy Scout troop whose dads um, had worked refining uranium for the Manhattan Project. Um, and when you're a kid, wherever you grow up, you think is normal. Maybe you've had this <laughs> experience. Uh, and you don't realize how weird it was until you go <laughs> other places and, and meet other people. So, um, uh, so I had a lot of kind of a science and engineering mentality sort of baked in from the very beginning. Um, so um, 
Actually, I'll, I'll, so I'll, I'll tell an anecdote that sums up Ames, Iowa in, in my youth. Okay, so in my Boy Scout troop, uh, some of the dads came up with an idea. We did all the normal Boy Scout things like Pinewood Derby and whittling arrowheads and that kind of stuff, but they came up with this idea, which was that uh, one of these guys worked in the ag engineering department. He's the co-inventor of the cylindrical hay bale. Uh, and he took some corn seeds that were as, uh, as close to being genetically identical as he could get. They weren't cloned necessarily, but like maybe all from the same head of corn or something, ear of corn. And he carried them across the campus to the office of another dad who was one of these Manhattan Project guys. <laughs> and that dad took it down to the sub-basement of this building where the hot room was. So there's a like three foot thick wall of leaded glass with manipulator arms. Uh, and on the other side of it is incredibly radioactive stuff. So that dad took the corn seeds and put them next to really radioactive stuff for differing amounts of time. And then like painted them different colors to, you know, the red ones had been really exposed to a lot of radiation and, you know, so on and so forth. And then those were handed out to us <laughs> at the next meeting of the, the Boy Scout troop. And the assignment was to plant them and cultivate these seeds. And then after a month, we'd bring the plants in and there'd be a prize given out for the tallest, healthiest corn plant and another prize for the weirdest mutation. <laughs> <laughs> and this is all completely deadpan, no hoopla, no sense of how weird this was. This is like, yeah, that's one of the things you do in Boy Scouts, uh, is grow mutant plants, um, you know. So that's kind of where I came from. Uh, and I, um, um, so I, you know, I studied uh, scientific type topics in school, but I always reserved some hope that I might be able to make a living as a writer uh, as well. And so I just didn't study it because I figured I could kind of work that out on my own. And so then after I graduated from college, I started writing books. And um, after, on the third one, I got very lucky. A whole bunch of things randomly fell into place for me. And I got an agent. I got an editor. I was able to publish a book. And so, um, so that's what I ended up doing. Um, so that was kind of. So you've never had a real job? Uh, well, I've had real shitty jobs, but <laughs> like, in, if you mean like a, a, a career kind of yeah. path job, I've not really had yeah. one of those. Other questions? In the middle here. Oh, somebody has it. Okay, sorry. Hi, I'm Kelly Wanzer. Um, I guess lifting from Esther's question a little bit, I'm curious about the um, what it was like um, when your first books came out and what the reception was like and the dialogues you were having around it versus today, 25 years later, mm. um, what it's like now. Yeah, so the first book that came out pretty much sank without a trace and was pulped. Um, and, what was uh, the name of that? The Big U. And then, uh, and then I wrote a quite terrible uh, manuscript because uh, I hadn't learned the the lesson, I, I, I decided I should have a work ethic because I knew I'd gotten very lucky. Okay, I'm gonna do this eight hours a day. And so that was a failed experiment for the reason I mentioned earlier. And then 
Uh, then I panicked and I wrote Zodiac in two weeks. Um, and, uh, um, and then that got published and did okay. Um, and then, um, uh, and then Snow Crash was the, the third book that, that got published. And that, that um, so that was me kind of uh, just seeing what would happen if I wrote something really weird. And um, it ended up being um, more successful than I thought it would be. So, um, uh, so now it's just much more of a, um, of a predictable process. Uh, it's more dialed in. Um, the, the, uh, there was a lot of randomness to how the first ones got, um, got, got published. And I think it's, uh, that's not saying that they did it wrong. It's saying that I think when you're a publisher, you're pl basically placing a lot of cheap bets on st stuff with long odds to see what happens. And then uh, anything that makes it through that filter um, is, is probably worth sinking more resources into. So um, I was thinking about this yesterday when I was trying to check into my hotel and it took forever to check in because I was standing behind Shaq in the, the check-in line. So Sha Shaquille O'Neal was consuming all of the bandwidth in the hotel. Uh, and uh, I couldn't get anyone to pay attention to me. Um, so uh, uh, that's not an accident, right? That's the publisher deciding that, okay, it's a, it's a sound economic bet to put resources into promoting um, this book by sending the dude on a book tour and you know putting him up in the same hotel as Shaquille O'Neal. Um, so um, you know it's just it just becomes a more dialed in. And I'm I'm still in the like I'm I'm you know incredibly fortunate and and doing well. But but there are people making tens or hundreds or maybe even thousands of times as much as I do by writing books. So it's a it's a crazily exponential kind of, of space to work in. You know, J.K. Rowling's is like the wealthiest woman in the world or something, um, just from writing books, you know? So um, there's, there's always somebody who's making 10 or 100 times as much as, as you are. Or less. Yeah, right. Right. Right, you may be that, you may be that person to somebody right. else. Right, right. Um, so, so it's a really weird business that way. So I think we have uh, more. Okay, yeah. I have another process question for you. You mentioned at the beginning that you compose your drafts longhand. Yeah. Is there any kind of writing technology that you rely on, fountain pens or mechanical pencils, or is this any old uh, instrument will do? I use a fountain pen, and um, just it's, it's a very low friction way to do it compared to a ballpoint. Um, and um, uh, they're kind of aesthetically cool. Um, and um, a while ago, I, um, I switched to using fancy paper because I thought it would make me more sort of parsimonious in my use of, of space. <laughs> uh, you know, but uh, that didn't work. <laughs> so I, I use this fancy paper from Italy, but even though it's fancy, you know, like the total outlay for all of the sheets of paper that went into this book is probably less than $100. So. <laughs> It's not a strong incentive, particularly. Yeah. So, uh, we got, okay. got one more. One more. All right, hey, 
Hi. Um, yeah, more process. So what have you learned about creativity? Is, just, is it just something that, you know, the, like writing, like the more you do it, the better you get at it? Or is it It is, yeah. It's like, it's, it's much better to think of it as being something like cabinet making um, or, you know, playing soccer, right? You play soccer a lot, you get good at it. Uh, and you can do things that other people think are special. Um, I say this as an incredibly bad soccer player, uh, or if you, you know, it's just practice makes you better at it um, and, um, and just makes it uh, possible to, um, to, to generate material. So I, I don't have like exalted or kind of mystical ideas about, about how that all works, particularly. Uh, do we have time for one more? There's a guy over on this side that I want to kind of cover. Oh, the, the bar contingent. Hi there. The bar, Hi. yeah. This should be good. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, so I, I kind of wanted to come back a little bit to the Project Hieroglyph stuff and the uh, sort of positive in your future. Uh -huh. um, it's always seemed to me like one of the more beautiful stories or sets of stories in this is sort of how we get around kind of specific existential or catastrophic risks, like stories that illustrate that. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if you see other people sort of picking up the torch on that, uh, if there's any other projects that you're excited about to sort of paint those stories, uh, or if you see a future for Project Hieroglyph there. Uh, writing projects, I, you know, I'm not aware, but I wouldn't be. I'm not your guy for that. I, I'm not a good uh, follower or a scholar of, um, of, of science fiction, but I just saw some reference the other day to some new movement, it had a really cool name. It was like, Protopian. what? Protopian? Protopian? Uh, that could have been it, yeah. Hey, but hey, that's my word. <laughs> I, invent, I invented Protopia. Okay. <laughs> what's, what's, what's yeah. <laughs> that's um, great, I'm glad to hear that it's taken off. <laughs> It was something like that. It was a. It was some kind of movement in science fiction writing, you know, that was that was trying to head in that direction. But it had a cool name like that. Um, but I don't like um, the the idea with hieroglyph was to um, come up with buildable uh, ideas that um, uh, that. Such, such that, that were clearly enough to find that uh, people could rally around them, um, and uh, you know you could uh, you could get a, a, an organization full of engineers and and money people and planners, who all kind of had the same notion in their heads of what the end goal was, and could work toward that without an undue amount of coordination and PowerPoint presentations and meetings. Um, and um, I don't know. If we really got there, um, the uh, um, I thought Corey Doctorow did a great job with his contribution, which is about a 3D printing thing on the moon. Um, mine was a little, probably a little too big, the 20-kilometer steel tower, um, and uh, so the others were more diffuse; they weren't sort of iconic necessarily. Um, so, uh, yeah. Well, we're, we'll all work on making our protopian future together. Yeah, and, way, to, um, way to work that in. I wanted to thank you, Neil, for, uh, <laughs> for your appearance yeah. here. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this talk, we hope you'll subscribe to hear more. 
You might also like Long Now's other podcast, Seminars About Long-Term Thinking, with more than 200 more long-term thinking lectures hosted by Stuart Brand. Subscribe to both at longnow.org slash podcast or wherever you like to listen.